Hello and welcome to another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. We're going to take a break from hearing about COVID-19 for this episode at least. Don't worry, we'll bring you all the results of the human trials of Imperial College's vaccine in future episodes. But in this one, we're going to look at the thing that's probably powering the vice you're listening to this on. Batteries. From the humble AA that we stick into the back of our TV remote, or cannibalise it for the DVD remote, as happens in my house, to our phones, laptops, and increasingly our cars, batteries are now everywhere to be found. In this episode, we hear from Professor Paul Shearing. He's a professor of chemical engineering at University College London, who spends more time than most of us at least examining these magical capsules that power our lives and looks at the exciting new ways we could use them. Setting up for the interview with Paul, which was recorded before lockdown, I made a highly ironic discovery. The conversation that we're having now is being recorded on a device that contains a lithium-ion battery, but often we don't really think what's... what's, That only has one bar left. Fingers (laughs) crossed it will will last last the cause. But... um, Hoping my battery would survive, I began by asking Paul about what is fast becoming one of the most important uses of batteries, the electric car. Does Paul have one and why? I don't have an electric car and I think the main reason that I don't have an electric car is is, is twofold. First of all, I think that that generally they're they're quite expensive if you compare a... um, uh, you know, a Tesla Model S, for example, with an equivalent combustion engine car, they're, they're, they're still they're still a premium uh, sort of uh, product. They're, they're, they've not sort of reached the sort of completely mass market level of, uh, of cost predominantly. We're getting closer and you're seeing more um, cheaper electric vehicles come online. The Tesla Model 3 famously is a sort of cheaper, younger brother of the Tesla Model S, the Nissan Leaf sells a lot of units um but we're not yet at the sort of same volumes of a ford fiesta or or a volkswagen golf so i think there's a way to go in 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 terms of cost um and for me personally the the rate determining step living in london is i I don't have any off-street parking so i've got nowhere to plug in an electric vehicle and that speaks again to a, a a need to uh i think improve the public charging infrastructure and of course that that's happening all the time you might have seen around london i've, new... I've seen fights over plugs oh right okay yeah. but but there are more plugs appearing all the time i think sort of every sort of six months or so they seem to be digging up yeah. bits of london okay so it's more of a price thing but what about the range of the newest electric cars coming onto the market? Can they compete with their fossil fuel guzzling cousins? I think that already you're probably seeing electric vehicles that can do sort of 300 miles plus. It, I mean, it, it depends a lot on the vehicle that you're purchasing and whether it's a, you know, I mean, very fundamentally, a big vehicle's got more room to, to put more more batteries in compared to a little a little sort of city car or something like that. Um, but yeah, you're, you're seeing things with pretty competitive um, range 300 miles plus. Um, will we continue to sort of see more and more um, range improvements? I think to a degree, but I suspect we're getting close to a point where it's just good enough. How often do you drive more than 350 miles in a day? I mean, it's, I, I would suggest it's quite rare. It's even rarer still that you do that with, without stopping. Um, and so I think that w- when we approach the sorts of ranges that you would expect from a typical you know, combustion engine car, then we've pro- probably done enough in terms of the range. Then the question becomes, how quickly can I recharge my battery? And can I make that recharging 
time equivalent to a refueling time for a for, for a for a petrol car, for example. So if you stop at a, a garage, it's going to take you ten minutes all told in order to be able to uh, to refuel your car. But it would take you a lot longer if you had to go to a forecourt and plug in and uh, uh, and fully recharge your battery. So the, the the range anxiety that people think about when they when they talk about purchasing electric cars, I think is a lot better. I don't think we've fully uh, addressed everyone's concerns. I think we need more of a fast charging infrastructure so people can stop at a motorway service station and you know plug in for half an hour and, and, and finish off their trip. But but yeah, in, in terms of absolute range, I think we're, we're getting to a point where it's pretty pretty competitive. One competitor to battery-powered electric cars are those powered by hydrogen fuel cells. Simply put, these are cars that use hydrogen, one of the most abundant elements in the universe, and oxygen to generate electricity. The hydrogen comes from one or more tanks built into the car, whilst the oxygen comes from air. The reaction generates electricity, but also heat and water, which is emitted through the exhaust as water vapour. Although hydrogen-powered cars are locally, at least, emission-free, there are currently only two models available in the UK. Yet, experts believe that hydrogen fuel cell cars will catch up. What does Paul make of it all? I definitely see an ecosystem emerging where there are pure battery vehicles, there are hybrid battery fuel cell vehicles. And particularly, I think, when you get to larger vehicles, you know, light goods vehicles, public service buses and, and, and upwards, there is a, a really compelling case for, for fuel cell technology. There are a number of, you know, large automotive companies and spin-outs developing, for example, fuel cells for, for HGV trucking, like long-range long trucking, just because it's really difficult to get a battery that has sort of a competitive uh, energy and power density at that scale. And if you think about what most trucks are doing, they're probably taking very well-trodden sort of main motorway or highway routes and so there's a so if you just have to worry about getting the m1 or the m4 corridor fully capable of hydrogen refueling then that's probably a an easier nut to crack than having to have a hydrogen fueling station on on every on every street corner an interesting perspective on the future of fuel cells there, but turning to a different mode of transport, with the growing number of people looking to decarbonise their travel, this hasn't escaped the aviation industry. And with the introduction of flight shaming into our lingo, that is, shaming people who fly when other less carbon-intense transport might be available, could we be flying on electric aeroplanes anytime soon? There's a huge shift towards decarbonising flights, and I think that electrochemical power systems will play a role in that. But it's it's going to be it's going to be hard. It's it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a tough thing to compete with a, a jet engine fueled with kerosene, and and for long haul flights, I, I I think that that might be a tough nut to crack. There may be some lower hanging fruit looking at sort of you know electrification of short haul flights. You know, London to Paris, for for, for example, mm. I think could. And take, take off and landing, I think, is, is 
well, it's where most of the emission takes place to actually get the plane off yeah, the ground. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so, the, so there might be sort of emerging hybrid power systems and things like that. And, and obviously, as you would expect, all of the big sort of engine and aero manufacturers are, are, are looking into this. How to integrate power sources into structural components. And I think there's some really cool concepts out there. I'm not sure that much has got past really the the, the, the concept stage, but but it's it's definitely interesting. Flexible batteries, fuel cells that you can you know put into a form factor of a. What wing. Paul is talking about there is batteries that actually make up the fuselage of the plane, and it's not difficult to see why that might be attractive. The big problem is that the battery that you need to power an aeroplane would be colossal, and where would you possibly store that battery? If you could somehow make your plane or car out of the battery, well, that would go a long way to solving your problem. At this point, some of you might be thinking, well, hold on a second. I don't want my car, and certainly not the plane I'm flying in, to be made out of, well, a distant cousin of the battery that went into the Samsung Galaxy phone, for example. That one that famously would just explode at random. And on that point, why is it that certain batteries built up a reputation of, well, just exploding? Well, so we, we, we do an awful lot of work at UCL in understanding the safety of batteries and understanding a process which is known as thermal runaway. So in very rare occurrences, uh, you might find that a battery fails and when it fails, it can be quite spectacular. I mentioned before, one of the great things about lithium batteries, is they're very, very energy dense. So you pack a lot of energy into quite a small volume. But then if something goes wrong, you've got to dissipate that energy as well. So so this process of thermal runaway is is, is a concern. But it's important to recognise, I think, that it's really, really rare. So the Samsung Galaxy Note 7 or the Boeing Dreamliner, these things made really sort of front page news. But actually, the chances of something like that happening on a given battery are very, very low. I think estimates from uh, from the Jeff Darns group in, in Dalhousie, who is a big authority on, on, on battery, um, lithium-ion batteries in general, that they estimate probably about one in 40 million batteries fail. So we're looking at really super low numbers of, of, of batteries failing. But clearly there's, you know, a, a big sort of media um, response to, to, to any of these incidences. So we, we do a lot of work, as I mentioned, in understanding thermal runaway. And we're always keen to say, you know, we, we blow up a lot of batteries. But in real life, it's very, very rare that that, that happens. Apart from exploding, there is another dark side to batteries, one which you might not have heard about. Batteries, like the one in your phone, consist of several ingredients, one of them being cobalt. Cobalt is an element most commonly found and mined in sub-Saharan Africa. These mines, as Paul explains, have been found to have some unsavoury practices, to say the least. So should we be concerned about where our batteries come from? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people who want to be doing something that, you know, is environmentally conscious and, and, and green, I think they would be equally concerned about the ethics involved in the in the supply of batteries. About 18 months or two years ago, there was a bit of a um, uh, a sort of horror story about some uh, cobalt that had been mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo under what would be described as an sort of artisan mining practices. That means really small-scale mines, quite, you know, unregulated, uh, that there was a suspicion that maybe some child labour was used in that mining process and that cobalt ends up finding its way into the consumer electronics products that we all use 
and don't even think about it. So, so I, I think there is definitely more awareness of improving the ethics of the supply chain. And if you want to find out more on how to ethically source your batteries, check out ethicalconsumer.org, which investigates and ranks some of the leading battery brands in terms of their ethical and environmental records. But I'll include a link in this episode's bio. With ever more electronic consumer goods hitting the market each year, it seems inevitable that we will have more and more batteries surrounding and even inside us. So what is the future of batteries in a world needing ever more and more juice? We have seen a huge sort of improvement and we've seen a huge reduction in cost. Uh, if you look at the lithium-ion batteries we have today, even compared to 10 years ago. Um, I think we're approaching some fundamental limits. Uh, you know, there are raw materials that always have a cost associated with them. There are physical limitations to some of the capacity of the materials that, that go into the battery. So I think we're approaching some of those limits. I think there is a few more sort of performance gains and cost benefits that can be eked out of the existing chemistries. But there are a whole bunch of sort of next generation post lithium ion technologies that might be cheaper or lighter or higher power or more energy dense. But either way, there's going to be a lot more batteries to deal with. If you think about one Tesla having maybe 7000 batteries in it, just that one vehicle, you know, there's, there's, there's a real challenge there in terms of how you deal with the reuse or recycling of all of those, all of those batteries. I think that there's two issues there. First of all is that, you know, clearly we don't want to have a, a crisis on our hands in terms of landfilling all these batteries. So we will need some more advanced processes for recovery and recycling of, of, of the batteries so we don't have a sort of ecological crisis on our hands. The Faraday Institution supports a large project called Relib, which is exactly looking at sort of ways of disassembling battery packs, recovering critical elements, recycling as much as, as possible. And the, the, the second point to consider is before we get as far as recycling, people who've spent 60 grand on an electric car, they want to recover some value from, from the, the battery that's in it. So before we think about you know, sending our automotive battery to the recycling plant, I think there's a real opportunity to second life that battery. So it could come off of your vehicle where perhaps the performance is sort of degraded to an extent where it's no longer suitable for, for a car application. It might be perfectly good enough for a stationary storage application. So, so these batteries, I think, can live again after they come off of a vehicle before they go on to eventually be, be, be recycled. So there's a whole circular economy aspect to, to, to batteries as well. So I suppose the golden rule is don't throw them out. So if you've got a lithium-ion battery and you look on the on the back of your mobile phone, you'll see that picture of a wheelie bin with a big cross through it. So definitely, definitely don't don't do that. There are there are you know uh, manufacturer responsibility schemes, so you can get all of these things recycled. But actually, rather than putting your old mobile phone into your sock drawer and forgetting about it, you can probably second life that and re recycle it and get some of the get some of the value back sell it to one of these online sort of web platforms that will give oh. 50 quid for, a, for for an old iPhone or, or, or something like that. But the, but the critical thing is don't, don't stick it in the bin because actually um, there, there is a risk if these batteries get landfilled that there, there, there could be some ecological yeah. fallout from, uh, from, from, from that. Yeah. I just had visions of you being able to power the house off several Well, um, I mean, I, I guess if you were sort of creatively minded, you could. But, but an, another critical thing to think about for people maybe listening to the podcast is that a, a lithium-ion battery that has sort of four volts in it 
Um, it's not going to do too much damage on its own. When you string 10 of those together, you're quick, quickly getting to, 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 to voltages that can be a little bit hairy to play with. So I would advise all of the hackers out there to proceed with, with extreme caution. And all you've got to do is look at YouTube and there's some absolute car crashes out there of people doing all sorts of really stupid things with lithium-ion batteries. So as a general rule, don't try and blow them up. Don't try and string them together in big chains. Definitely don't try and take them to pieces. And as you mentioned with the recycling, I think that trying to be responsible with what we do with these batteries at the end of their life is, is, is really a, a responsibility that we all share. And before our own batteries die out, I think we'll have to end. Thank you very much, Paul. Pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. And that was Professor Paul Shearing speaking to me there. Thankfully, my battery made it to the end. Well, that's your lot for another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. As ever, thank you so much for listening. And please hit subscribe to us if you haven't done so already. Which leaves me to say that until next time, Never Lick the Spoon.